Welcome back to the Vine Church podcast. Today we are continuing our study, The God Who Loves, exploring the doctrine of the Trinity. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Odium and Church Crookham, and would love to have you join us over there. Welcome everybody, welcome to part two of The God Who Loves as we get into the Trinity. If you're watching on YouTube, it's fantastic to have you. For all you here in person, it's wonderful to have you here. Uh, As we go through tonight, feel free, if you have any questions, either uh, put them in the live chat box or put your hand up, and at the end we're going to have a question time. Uh, There is a handout available in the description of the video that you can find. It's just a helpful way to follow along with the video. Uh, So... What did we talk about last week? Last week, we looked at the need for theology proper. We looked at the need to know God as he is in himself, because we need to understand God rightly. This week, we're going to be looking at an actual definition of the Trinity. What do we actually mean by that? We're trying to grasp that. So as we, uh, as we go through the study, this part is going to be really essential Obviously, having an accurate knowledge of who the Trinity is or what the Trinity is is going to be essential to everything else about it. So we can't study the benefits of the Trinity without this part, what is the Trinity. So first, let's define some terms. What do we mean by the Trinity? Now, it should be said at the beginning, obviously, the Trinity is a mystery. It's unfathomable. It's beyond the human grasp. It's just like the concept of eternity. You can understand what I mean if I said God never began and God will never end. So we can use words which we know what they mean, but we still can't get our heads around the concept. We don't know the full meaning. We can't really imagine it. So in the same way, we can accurately describe the Trinity even if we can't get our heads around it. So that's what we're going to do. How do we accurately describe the Trinity? And so I'm going to give a succinct three points for a a quick definition of the Trinity, of God's triune nature. And now, these three points come from a man called B.B. Warfield, who was a brilliant theologian in the 20th century. Now, we're going to carefully examine each of these three points next week to see if they hold up to the biblical witness. But let's just look at them quickly. So the first point is that there is only one God. Pretty simple, probably. We're all on board with that. There's one God. Okay. But the Father and the Son and the Spirit is each God. And thirdly, the Father and the Son and the Spirit is each a distinct person. So we've got three points here that accurately describe the Trinity. There's one God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit is each God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit is each a distinct person quite simple. Let's, let's boil that down into one sentence. So in one sentence, we're saying, within the one being, that is God, there eternally exists three co-equal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is that, is that okay so far? We're all good with this? Okay, now, the language in this sentence is, is very careful. and it's really, it's really good that we Uh, see how it's being used carefully. So for one thing, we need to notice this. There is one being and three co-equal persons. It's really critical 
that we get the preciseness of that language. You know, it's a really important distinction between the two going on there. These are very different words that we get to very different conclusions if we confuse, and the Trinity ends up being misunderstood or misused. About two years ago, I met a Jehovah's Witness who I met up with a few times thereafter, but uh, he was saying to me, yeah, this it's ridiculous, this notion that you have one being who's actually three beings. And it's like, yeah, that is ridiculous because that's not what the Trinity is. So what do we actually mean by being and persons? How are they distinct? Well, one of the problems is we have what one theologian, James White, calls word baggage, right? So we use words in a certain way and so, over time, we end up creating baggage for how that word sounds. So, an example would be, if we had three people sat around a table, you could say there's three beings, or there's three persons, and both would be right. Because as a human, I'm both a being and a person. And so, we can end up thinking that these are the same thing, but they're not. So, what is the difference? Well, being is what you are. Person is who you are. So I am a human being. That determines what I am. Because there are, there are lots of other things out there, lots of other beings, the same as me. And so I'm a human being, you're a human being, we're human beings. That's saying what we are. Another word we might use is essence or substance. You know, the, my essence is I'm a human. You know, for anyone who likes baking, if you think of vanilla essence, what they're saying is they've, they've boiled down this vanilla to what makes it vanillary. They've got the essence of it, the essential nature of what makes it vanilla. So in other words, I'm a human being because I'm made of human-y stuff. I have all the human stuff, so I'm a human being. All the stuff that makes someone a human, I share. In fact, I share with all of you. We're all human beings. We all have the human stuff, the same substance, the same essence. To put it quite morbidly, if you were to boil us down into a jug, we'd all look the same. But what distinguishes you from me and you from everyone else is your personhood. You are a person. And this is what's distinct about you. Your name, your role, everything about you is distinct because you're a person. Now, obviously, personhood and being are quite similar. They're related. They feed into each other. You know, so, for instance, as a human being, one thing that unites all of us is that we all need food to eat. And so it's not surprising that one of the things you find in lots of people's personality is they love eating. There's a, there's a link there because they need to eat, they enjoy eating. So these are related. The things that you are feed into who you are. Uh, so when we apply this to God, what we're saying is that God is one being. You know, his, his essence is that he's unchanging, he's eternal, he's infinite, you know, he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all the things that make God, God. You know, the God stuff, the stuff of God. But he also exists eternally in three persons the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And they have always existed at the same time. Yet, they are distinct 
from one another. So they all have the fullness of the God stuff. So what this means is, when we talk about the Father, we're talking about God. When we talk about the Son, we're talking about God. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about God. And yet, when we talk about the Father, we're not talking about the Son. When we talk about the Son, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about the Father. So each person is fully God. Each person completely has the essence of God, the God stuff. And yet, as I say, each person is distinct, one being in three persons. This is a kind of a, a classic way that it's been expressed in church history. You know, that it's called the Trinity Shield, that we have God, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son. So that's a really helpful way that people throughout the years have uh, shown people what we mean by the Trinity. Each one is fully God, and yet they're not each other. You know, we often use the phrase three in one. It's not technically accurate. You know, I'm not trying to send you on a witch hunt for every song or person who says we worship a God that's three in one. But it's more accurate to say we worship a God who is one in three, one being in three persons. Now, it's really important that we get this distinction right in our heads. You know, we'll see this in a moment, this distinction between person and being. We're not saying that God has three different personalities. You know, like you get a human with split personality disorder, they have three distinct ways of interacting with you. We're not saying that. We're saying that God is, is always Father, Son, and Spirit, and each are God, distinct from each other. So that's, these are all absolutely essential things. And so we can't, we can't think that being person is kind of the same word. You just choose one, whichever suits the situation. No, they are distinct, and we need to guard those distinctions in order to give an accurate representation of who God is. So in light of that, there's, there's three ingredients that we need to keep absolutely solid in our minds when we think about the Trinity. So, and these, these three ingredients are all kind of, remember we did that, those three lines at the beginning, these are all related to that. So there's only one God, the Father, Son, and Spirit is each God, they're all equal, and there's three persons, they're all distinct. So one God, all three are God, all three are distinct. If you have this, you have the Trinity. That's, that's the Trinity in its most kind of succinct way of understanding it. But we can sometimes get the Trinity wrong. There are various ways we can slip into errors. If we get something, if we misapply something or put the emphasis somewhere wrong, we end up untangling the whole thing. So how, how do we get it wrong is the big question. Now, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce some known ways that people over time have got it wrong. Yeah, and these are, these are known as heresies, and I'm not just using that as a kind of opinion, I really hate these things. These are formally defined as heresies. They go against the creeds of the church. So there's a few heresies that we can see. So if we have this triangle, now this one's obviously, this one's going to be quite obvious. 
someone says, well, I'm not sure about the one God. I believe in the three persons, and I believe they're all, they're all God, but I don't have one God. You end up with three gods. So that's polytheism. And so cults like Mormonism, for instance, believe in three separate gods. The Father is a God, the Son is a God, the Spirit is a God. So they've ignored one side of the triangle. Now, obviously, this one is quite obviously stands out as not Christian. You know, people here, you serve three gods, and they go, no, no, that's not right. But the other two are a bit more subtle. So the other one, someone says, yeah, I believe in one God, and I believe that they're all the three persons are God, but if you leave that they're all distinct persons, you'll end up with a view called modalism. Now, modalism is the view that you have one God, rightly, who has kind of three different personalities. So sometimes he appears to you as a father, sometimes he appears as the son, and sometimes he appears as the spirit. But they're not eternally existing alongside one another. God is only one at a time. He is distinct in, those, in that way. Now, as I say, this is a heresy. This is not what the Trinity is. So that's what happens if you ignore the, uh, the, 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 the distinction of the three persons. But then what if you have the distinction and you have one God, but they're not equal? Well, there's two views you actually end up with. I've only put one here. One view is called partialism. So partialism is that you have um, God has three parts. So the Son is a third of God. The Spirit is a third of God. The Father is a third of God. And you only have God when all three are together. The other view that I didn't put up there, which I should have done, is called subordinationism. Because it teaches that the Father is the true God, and the other two are kind of subservient, subordinate to him. They're kind of lesser gods. So, yeah, they are God, but you don't have the equality of the persons. You know, the Father is kind of the real God. Now, as I say, these are all formerly heresies. These are not the Christian faith. And uh, one of the problems with these, one of the problems why these are so widespread is because we love analogies, you know, which is, is fine. Analogies are great a lot of the time. They're really helpful to learn and remember things. You know, they're, they're a great way to explain difficult concepts. But sometimes there just aren't going to be analogies that work. You know, especially when you're dealing with God, which shouldn't really come as a surprise because this is God we're talking about. You know, God is the incomparable one. He's the unanalogizable one. He's the one who you can't compare to. So Isaiah 40 verse 25 says, to whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. You know, so it's not saying that there's never going to be times where you can use an analogy for God or you're sinning if you try and make an analogy. But it is saying sometimes you're going to have to deal with the fact that God is just simply beyond our grasp and analogies aren't going to work. And so often, well-meaning Christians with, with good intentions who, you know, their heart is in the right place and I don't want to kind of beat down anyone who's done this in the past because I think it's, it comes from a good place. We want people to understand but what they've done is they've misrepresented God because they've tried to put it into an analogy. But the problem is there isn't really a way that you can present an analogy for a trinity, uh, for the Trinity without going into one of these heresies. So, you know, 
for instance, the classic one. God is like H2O. He can appear as ice, or uh, which can appear as ice, or water, or steam. But it's all one thing. It's all water. It's all H2O, rather. Well, the problem with this is water cannot exist as water, ice, and steam all at the same time. There is no kind of ongoing distinction. This is modalism. This is that, that heresy that says God appears in three different personalities. Now, we're going to look in a minute about how this might sound okay when we're trying to make an analogy, but when you actually apply it to the biblical text, it, it can't do justice to it. So if we're using this, we're saying the, the, the persons of God have no eternal existence and distinction. There's a, there's a variation of this view, which, you know, I apologize for the long word, but uh, called patripassianism, which just literally means the father suffers. So some people in the early church, because they were modalists, would say that the father also died on the cross. And you know, there's a very popular book today uh, called The Shack, in, in which this heresy is promoted, where the father shows the nail wounds on his, in his wrists. Well, that's not a Trinitarian God. The father did not die on the cross. The son did. And it's really important that we keep that uh, protected. So this is one analogy that people have used. Another analogy is sometimes use a clover, sometimes they use an egg, sometimes they use a Mars bar, but you end up with one egg, which is made of a shell, a white, and a yolk. And yet you don't have the egg unless you have all of them together. The reality is, None of these share the full substance of an egg. Put it like this. Anna is not going to be happy with me if on a Saturday morning I serve her shell on toast. The shell is not an egg. The shell is part of an egg. If we apply this to God, what we're saying is the Father is not God. The Father is a part of God. And that's, I mean, should be ringing in our ears. That's clearly wrong. It clearly doesn't match the biblical view. Who here wants to say that Jesus is only a third of God? That doesn't, doesn't sound right because it's, it's not right. So what happens is we try and make these analogies, but we actually end up choking our own ability to understand God in the Bible. And so as I say, it comes from a good place because we're trying to help people understand who God is but we end up shooting ourselves in the foot because we, as I say, choke the ability to let the Bible talk. Uh, which is why I've called this part the analogy graveyard because the Trinity is where analogies come to die. So let's look at some ways, there's some places where you really need an accurate view of the Trinity to make sense of it. So, you know, a classic place is Jesus' baptism. Um, now, Jesus' baptism is a brilliant showcase of Trinitarian theology. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, I've underlined where we can see each member of the Trinity. Now, the partialist, uh, sorry, the, the modalist is looking at this, going... No clue. I've got no clue how to make sense of this. Somehow, we've got God, the Son, who then quickly changes into the Spirit, who then quickly changes into the Father. But that doesn't work in the modalist framework, because you have each, them, each of them there at the same time, 
each of them clearly uh, divine and, and working together. Now, the partialist is looking at this going, finally, somewhere where we actually see God, because in the rest of the New Testament, we're just seeing a few places where you know, we see a third of God. And so this is one of the few places we get to see God in himself. Another place we might go, which I don't have the slide for, but John 17. In John 17, Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer. And he's praying to the Father. And he starts by saying that they may know you, the only God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, non-Trinitarians love to pounce on this and say, Jesus is praying to the Father, saying you're the only God. And it's like, yeah, that's fine, because we're not modalists. We don't think that God's just there talking to himself. We actually think that this is the Son talking to the Father. It's not God talking to himself. As I say, there is a distinction in the persons. If we were modalists, John 17 would be a real challenge for us, because Jesus is calling the Father God, the only God. If we were anything other than Trinitarians, these passages don't make sense. And so we need to have this accurate view of the Trinity. Because more often than not, this is going to affect us evangelistically. Because most of the time, people who have some familiarity with the Trinity think we're modalists. And then say it doesn't make any sense. So to give an example, um, an RE teacher of a a school that uh, that I went to a few months ago was telling me that they were planning to teach the Trinity... And, and I said, if you're going to teach the Trinity, please just promise me you won't use the water, ice, and steam analogy. And they said, oh, but it, it's a really helpful way of explaining it. And it's like, well, if you're going to use that to explain it, you're not explaining the Trinity. It's like saying, we're going to teach World War II, and we're going to teach about Napoleon Bonaparte's victory. And it's like, well, Napoleon Bonaparte wasn't in World War II. Yeah, but it's helpful to explain it that way. If you, if you change the details, you're not teaching what you're supposed to be teaching. Uh, another example... I've got a clip here of a, an atheist called Matt Dillahunty, who um, as a, as a, is a very um, provocative, uh, not just an atheist, but an anti-theist. He, he preaches against Christianity. And he was on Premier Radio doing a debate. And he made this uh, provocative statement. Should we stick it on? God, who's been demanding that we slaughter animals and burn them because he likes barbecue, is now decided that he's going to come down and take human form and sacrifice himself to himself for a weekend to fix everything for everybody. So God decides to take human form, sacrifice himself to himself. That's modalism. We don't believe that. We believe that the son sacrificed himself to the father. And so the, the problem is, he's complaining against Christianity as though we're modalists, but we could say, you, you've got it wrong. We don't think that. And so, we believers have to be really careful that we are representing God accurately. It, it will shoot us in the foot. And, but the other side of it is, obviously, as we talked about last week, it's not merely for the sake of other people, but actually we want to understand God for who he is. We want to understand him accurately. And as I've said previously, we will make problems for ourselves reading the Bible unless we have this accurate view of the Trinity, that God is one being eternally existing in three persons. So this isn't controversy for the sake of controversy. You know, I'm not, I'm not just trying to uh, call people out. Uh, it's not theological nitpicking. This is actually really essential stuff. And uh, certainly, as we go through this study, um, as we get to part, f- when we're in part four, we're going to look at 
the practical relevance and the, the ways that you know, we really can glory and enjoy the Trinity, well, it's essential that we understand this bit to get that bit. So, um, as, I, as I say, as we get further on, we'll see how these incorrect views of God really um, cause problems for us. So, uh, we're going to end it there in terms of me talking. So, I hope that's helpful in, in terms no. of getting a, an accurate view of uh, the Trinity and know what we talk about when we're talking about the Trinity. But just before we finish, uh, does, is there any questions from anyone? Uh, we can just end it there if, if not, but I'll give you a second. Uh... No? Cool. Okay. Well, thanks very much, guys, for coming along. I hope that's been okay. And uh, hopefully I'll see you again next week for part three, which I'm particularly excited about. So, cheers, guys.